My dad found my mom extremely annoying, and he still had two children with her. <laughs> you're a rich girl, and you're gone too far, cause you're dancing in the moonlight, everybody's real. On the close up time to dance, baby got <laughs> Welcome back to Rips for Lunch, the show that wants to be... That's what we're doing. Yes, I'm Aviv Rubenstein. I'm your host. Uh, joining me as always, the Sid Vicious to my Johnny Rotten. Hello, it's me, Lindsay. Hello, Hi. Lindsay. How are I'm you? I'm okay. How are you? <laughs> Same. <laughs> Stressy and also depressing. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. <clears throat> so, should we just get right into it? Yeah. I know how, I know how much you hate dilly-dallying i do hate dilly-dallying you know it um so what are we what are we what are what are we talking about today i think we're talking about the sex pixels yes this is a listener request a couple people specifically friend of the show sonia missio asked about the sex pistols so what do you know about the band called the sex pistols you know, not too much. I know that they were kind of short-lived. Like, they had a short but influential mm-hmm. career. Mm-hmm. They're, like, beloved. Mm-hmm. Um, they're anti-establishment. Mm-hmm. Maybe. Maybe. And I think they're from the UK. <laughs> <laughs> they are from the UK. So the song in question specifically for this week is Anarchy in the UK. So let's take a quick listen to the song for people who might not be familiar with the band or the music that we're talking about today or, you know, give Lindsay a a quick refresher and uh, and then we'll we'll get to it. usually so talkative during <laughs> during this <laughs> uh you know it's like punk mm-hmm. who is who's the enemy i use the enemy it's, yeah i use the enemy he wants to be anarchy 
He certainly does. <laughs> we'll do. We will definitely do a lyric dive. Okay. Don't you worry. Okay, great. This is, after all, lyrics for lunch. Yeah, I like pop punk. This isn't really my jam. This this kind of music. Well, okay. I'm not gonna. Well, okay. I'm gonna convince you a thing. I'm gonna convince you that this is pop punk, but that you still don't like it. Okay. That's that's my goal for the. <laughs> yeah, it's a little like yell whiny for me. Yell whiny. Okay. Yell whiny. I mean, I also want to be anarchy. So, like, I'm on board with the message. It's the delivery. Well, <laughs> let's see. Let's see. Let's see. Let's see if you're okay. Let's see. All right. Let's just see. All right. All right. All right. I have a feeling I might be regretting those words. <laughs> Since you want to be anarchy, why don't you grace us with a dramatic reading of the lyrics? Oh, just all of them? Just me? Yeah, there's not that. Not that. Right now, I am an anarchist. Pretty good. (laughs) Hold on, mate. That's that's literally not the the words, though. (laughs) Right now, I am an an antichrist. (laughs) That's right. And I am an anarchist. Don't know what I want but I know how to get it. I want to destroy passerby because I want to be anarchy. No dog's body. Anarchy for the UK. It's coming sometime. And maybe I give a wrong time. Stop a traffic line. Your future dream is a shopping scheme because I want to be anarchy in the city. How many ways to get what you want? I use the best. I use the rest. I use NME. I use anarchy because I want to be anarchy. It's the only way to be. Is this the MPLA or is this the UDA or is this the IRA? I thought it was the UK or just another country, another council tenancy. I want to be anarchy. You know what I mean? And I want to be an anarchist. I get pissed. Destroy. Okay. So what do you think this song's about? (laughs) (laughs) An incel. Uh, you're you're getting warmer. <laughs> uh, you tell me. That's why we're here. Let's let's do a quick a quick dive, specifically the verse that is using all those letters. Sure. I use the best. I use the rest. I use NME. So what is NME? NME stands for Nuclear <laughs> Missiles Everywhere. Mm-hmm. That's right. <laughs> uh, no. It's the music magazine. Oh, yeah. NME. Sure. I know NME. So it stands for New Music Express. Great. Okay. And so then we go on to, I use anarchy because I want to be anarchy. It's the only way to be. Is this the MPLA? Uh, What is the MPLA? The People's Movement of Liberation of Angola. Yes. (laughs) 
good googling <laughs> right so it's it's a it's like a left-wing kind of uh militant party to free angola from the portuguese army okay right? so is this the mpla is this the uda what is the uda the ulster defense association <laughs> a loyalist paramilitary group in Northern Ireland. <laughs> yes, a lawyer, a loyalist paramilitary. So, loyalists. Tell me what loyalists are in, in kind of the context of Northern Ireland. Uh, loyal to the government. Loyal to the crown. Yeah, because yeah. Northern Ireland is still part of the UK. Um, or is this the IRA? <laughs> the opposite of the UDA. I thought it was the UK, the United Kingdom. So it seems like he, I don't know. what is, is he making a political statement other than get pissed, destroy? Uh, is he saying, like, do we even have a stance? Maybe. I don't know. Well, let's find out. Let's see if we can delve into seems what like he was you thinking do know. Uh, uh, it's bad. It's bad. Oh, okay. Okay. So this is from grunge.com. The Sex Pistols were born the day that the day in 1975 that John Lydon walked into the band's rehearsal space wearing a Pink Floyd t-shirt with the words I hate written above the logo and walked out of the rehearsal space as Johnny Rotten. For the next three years, the Pistols would tear through the stages at colleges, art schools, and other establishments. Steve Jones summed up the band's philosophy when he told the reporter, actually, we're not into music. We're into chaos. Okay, this brings up a good point because you asked me who are the Sex Pistols. I gave like a two-second elevator pitch from memory and then you didn't really tell us anything. Well, I'm, this whole episode is going to be me telling you okay. who are the Sex Pistols. Okay. Uh, the story goes a little deeper, if you can believe it. And it starts with an unlikely clothing boutique owner named Malcolm McLaren. What? Yeah, it's true. So... This is from the Herald via Paul Gorman's book, The Life and Times of Malcolm McLaren. Malcolm McLaren was born on Tuesday, January 22nd, 1946 in Stoke, Newington, London to Emily and Peter McLaren. Emily's mother, Rose, Malcolm's grandmother, lived next door and she was in attendance at the birth. She would be in attendance throughout his childhood in a way that his parents wouldn't. By the end of 1947, Malcolm's father left the family home. Sure, his wife had been unfaithful and wouldn't see McLaren or his older brother, Stuart, again until 1989. So 42 years. Wow. We got some deadbeat dads. (laughs) A new new thing for this show. (laughs) We never hear about them. Yeah, it doesn't doesn't happen. So Paul Gorman, the writer of this book, says that's an extraordinary thing to do to not see your son for forty two years, even halfway through when when Malcolm McLaren was very famous. Uh, his mother Emily, meanwhile, took a job as a traveling saleswoman soon after her husband left, and her disinterest in her son was quickly apparent. Oh. As young Kim, Malcolm McLaren's partner in the years before he died, said. He came from a family without any love, frankly. His mother had abandoned him. So this left him in the company of his grandmother, Rose, who later in life would boast that she was descended from from Portuguese aristocracy, who hated the man that she married and carried that anger with her throughout the rest of her life. So we have some anger. This is an angry family. This is an angry. Well, this is an angry song we listen to. Correct. 
Rose made for a curious surrogate parent, to say the least. She told the young Malcolm inappropriate stories, mythologized her past, and shared a bed with her grandson until his teenage years. What? Sorry, into his teenage years. Okay. He would later tell a story about how she would wind silken ribbons into his pubic hair to discourage him from sexual encounters, hoping he'd be too embarrassed to undress. Okay. Literally, when you're like, oh, they shared a bed into the teen years, and I thought, "Mm, okay, that could be vile, but maybe it's innocent. Maybe they didn't have a lot of space. Mm -hmm. But, But Tell me more. But now we are braiding pubic hair. Mm-hmm. We're braiding ribbons into pubic hair. Totally different. I'm so confused. <laughs> braiding pubic hair is gross. Braiding ribbons into pubic hair it's is beautiful. a thoughtful thing a thoughtful <laughs> thing a grand, grandmother does to her grandson. Just a little flair. <laughs> so what makes this grandmother think that by braiding <laughs> little ribbons into her grandson's pubic hair that he wouldn't take them out? Okay, so you're a teenage guy. It's the, it's the 60s. It's England. And you're hooking up with a girl, and she's like, take your pants off. Let's see your tallywhacker, or whatever, whatever British people say, right? And he's like, yeah. no, I couldn't possibly, because there are ribbons in my pubic hair. My grandmother put them there. My grandmother put them there. <laughs> say less. But, I also, you know, everything he says has to be taken with a grain of salt. Right. A huge mountain of salt. Okay. Anyway, that's disturbing. We can move on. <laughs> McLaren said, my mother thought that she was the most evil person that ever walked the planet. Of the gra- My mother thought her mother, Grandma Rose, was the most evil person that ever walked the planet. She was a harsh woman, and although I respected her, she had no regard for morals or principles. Wow. This family is just sounding better and better. Yeah, the same accusation Gorman por- po- points out in his book would also be leveled at Malcolm McLaren himself. She was, quote, she was obviously a piece of work, and she infused in him this wish to be a contrarian. He goes into fashion, but he wants to be anti-fashion. He promotes the Sex Pistols as the band that can't play music. Every single time, there's a contradictory element to it. Yeah. In many ways, Malcolm McLaren's life was spent putting into practice Rose's notion of to be bad is good because to be good is simply boring. Okay. It played out in the shop he set up with his then-partner, Vivian Westwood, in the 1970s, after years at art school, where, along with bondage trousers, t-shirts showing semi-naked cowboys and bondage gear, he once designed a t-shirt with a photograph of one of the shop's leather hoods, the legend, (laughs) the legendary Cambridge Rapist. What? So he put the legendary Cambridge Rapist's name and face on a a series of t-shirts and leather hoods fantastic loving this guy mclaren then added a quote from the beatles it's been a hard day's night and an image of brian epstein brian epstein the hard day's night and the rapist and also the came i don't know i can't like find a picture of this i can't imagine (laughs) how this goes okay t-shirt emblazoned with a photograph of one of the shop's leather hoods the legend Cambridge rapist, the name the newspapers given had given to a, the culprit behind a series of sexual assaults around the university city. McLaren then added a quote from the Beatles. It's been a hard day's night and an image of Brian Epstein. So it's like a lot of stuff. It's, it's, like, it's probably doing t-shirt. too much. 
Yes. I can't, okay. can't find it. Okay. I didn't want to Google like Cambridge rapist t-shirt. <laughs> why, why ever would you not? Yeah. McLaren meant it as a comment on the media coverage of the assaults, but it also displayed an indifference to the suffering that you could say McLaren was guilty of on more than one occasion. So let's take a step back. Okay. After running out of art schools in 1971, Malcolm McLaren moved into a London house that was pretty much a commune. This is from the University of Green Bay, Wisconsin, University of Wisconsin, Green Bay, and their class Europe in the 20th century. This is the lesson uh, called Manufacturing the Sex Pistols. And so from here on, it'll be between that and the telegraph until I say otherwise. Okay. So McLaren moved into a house that was pretty much a commune, and it was there that he met Vivian Westwood quote this is a quote from mclaren she was a complete autodidact going on about culture i always found her very annoying okay well let's say say who vivian westwood is yes this is my next note short digression on vivian westwood <laughs> okay vivian westwood is one of the this is from her own bio is vivian westwood is one of the last independent global luxury fashion houses she campaigns against climate change and for human rights she's been designing and making fashion for 50 years since 1970 and her clothing was featured in the 2008 movie sex in the city she's such a popular fashion designer that i have actually heard of her Yes, and she was big in the punk scene. Huge in the punk scene for, well, we'll find out exactly why in a second. But her, basically her weird quasi-BDSM, quasi-like trash bag aesthetic became the fashion of punk. And that's Mm -hmm. what we're talking about today. Thanks in large part to Malcolm and the Sex Pistols. Because you're saying because she was dating him? You'll see. (laughs) How dare you? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Malcolm didn't find her that annoying, though, because they had a child together. Oh, well, my dad found my mom extremely annoying and he still had two children with her. <laughs> so, quote Malcolm. Yes, well, sometimes when you're annoyed by people, it becomes attractive and stimulating. The house was full of American draft dodgers and she would walk around completely naked. Naturally, being young, I was only 17. My testosterone meant I couldn't help but be attracted to her body. And I found myself in bed with her one night and lost my virginity to her. And suddenly she handed me the bill. She was pregnant. And what was I going to do about it? Whoa. First timer. First timer. One and done. Big swimmers. <laughs> Malcolm says, I went to my rich grandmother who gave me the money for Vivian to have an abortion. Oh. Vivian took the money and spent it on a cashmere twin set instead. Good for her. Good for her. <laughs> Fuck yeah. <laughs> so they had a son named Joe. And Malcolm remembers turning up at the hospital in the snow a few days after Joe was born. Quote, the nurse was extremely rude. She said, what took you so long? Are you a long distance lorry driver? And I thought, fuck you. Wow. Hmm. I like this nurse. I like this. The nurse is the only good character (laughs) in this entire story. Did he feel, this is from the Telegraph, did he feel fatherly instincts at all? Not really. I was lost in that terrain. I'd been brought up to destroy families. Oh, okay. So he's Mm -hmm. definitely not a psychopathic narcissist. No, 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 no. And we know, we, we know that psychopathic narcissists aren't created in a vacuum, but this is, we're going to hear about some damage that he inflicted. Okay. Can't wait. So he and Vivian did have a, 
an attempt at being normal parents for a while. Quote, we never really had sex again after Joe was born, but we did live together. We became this odd couple. Most of my art student friends didn't like Vivian. I think maybe because they were jealous of her. They didn't want to share me. Oh, (laughs) I was the strange creature who didn't show any sexuality one way or the other. So they felt possessive of me. I went into depression for a while, then decided to make myself a blue lame suit copying Elvis. I got Vivian to help me. That was a big change. I realized she was a gifted seamstress. For the band. For the band. And but also, like, how, do you, how the fuck do you take credit for, like, oh, man, Vivian, you should make clothing. Shut right. up. Shut up, Malcolm. And I just love how he's like, I was depressed, so I had Vivian make me a new suit. Then I was a new man. Right. And (laughs) then I discovered, Vivian, you have a calling. (laughs) Joe, their son, was dispatched to a series of boarding schools, freeing his parents to pursue their unconventional business. Together, Malcolm and Vivian opened up a clothing shop on King's Road. Called Sex. But they never had sex again. And this is the store that pioneered the punk look of bondage trousers, ripped t-shirts, spike dog collars, right? Yeah. But it was not called Sex originally. So at first, this place before Malcolm even owned it was in the back of, uh, it was owned by Patrick Casey, who was Malcolm's friend from art school. And it was in the back of a boutique called Paradise Garage. And so it was a, like almost like a secondhand store and it would... Uh, sell like rock and roll records and magazines and clothing and memorabilia from the 60s okay and that was his store that was patrick casey's store and then there then trevor miles who owned the whole of paradise garage gave all of paradise garage to mclaren and patrick casey together so they renamed the shop let it rock horrible name so they had regular kind of regular clothing of the time secondhand and teddy boy clothes which were i don't exactly know what teddy it's like it's like rock and roll like dandy and mod clothing and that was made by vivian right mm-hmm. so vivian's starting to make clothing for the store okay and at that time she was like a school teacher by day and a clothing maker by night okay the interior was given period details. By who? Of the, uh, probably of, from Vivian. Odeon wallpaper, trinkets, tailored draped jackets, skin tight trousers, thick soled shoes that were called brothel creepers. Wait, I have to Google this. Brothel creeper. Brothel creepers, I yes. Need to see, I need to see one of these. They look like um, Doc Martens, but with a thicker sole. Okay, got it. I know what you're talking about. And so the London Evening Standard eventually like wrote about Let It Rock because it was such an unconventional store. In, 90, in 73, they changed the name to Too Fast to Live, Too Young to Die. It's a little long. They, <laughs> it's kind of a long name for the store. <laughs> and uh, they, they rebranded for like rocker, fa- like 60s rock and roll fashion. So they're getting kind of closer to what we know of, what we know them for. And now what, what year is it? Six, this is 73. Okay, okay, okay. So they're going from the 50s to the 60s now. Meanwhile, there's this band in London called The Strand. Mm-hmm. I literally cannot find any music from them. Okay. They're also sometimes known as The Swankers. 
The Swankers. Swankers. Their members included Steve Jones, Paul Cook, Wally Nightingale, and Jim Mackin. Jim Mm. Mackin? Am I supposed to know him? No. But these names will become familiar. Steve Jones, Paul Cook, Wally Nightingale, Jim Mackin. Okay. And the band members regularly hung out at one of two clothing shops in this Kings Road area of Chelsea. Guess which one we're going to talk about. Did you say what they both were? No, but one of them is irrelevant and one of them is Malcolm's shop. Oh, then Malcolm's shop. Yes. (laughs) So, in 70, which is currently called Too Fast to Live, Too Young to Die. Even as an acronym, uh, it's too much to say. (laughs) T-F-T-L-T-Y-T-D. Worse than CBGB's. Um, So, in early 74, Steve Jones asked Malcolm to manage the strand. And Malcolm paid for them to for their first like rehearsal space because he just wanted to be their friend well we'll see we'll see what he wanted but yeah Malcolm agreed and like gave him a little bit of walking around money to to do a rehearsal space and Glenn Matlock who was an art student who worked at too fast to live too young to die was recruited as the band's bassist great so now we got Steve Jones, Paul Cook, Wally Nightingale, Jim Mackin, and Glenn Matlock. <laughs> Bunch of wankers. Bunch of wankers. The swankers. <laughs> Everything changes in November of 1974. McLaren temporarily moves to New York City. Why? I think only for like six months. I don't fucking know. It's the 70s. I think he just like wanted to. Great. So, in November of 1974, Malcolm temporarily relocates to New York City. And before his departure, he and Vivian had conceived a new identity for their shop. They renamed it Sex. <laughs> and they changed the focus from retro couture to S&M-inspired anti-fashion. <laughs> the, bill, the, bill, the billboard said, or the, the billing sheet said, specialists in rubberware, glamourware, and stageware. After informally managing and promoting a band called the New York Dolls for a few months, Mm. McLaren returned to London in May of 75. So he managed the New York Dolls. Yes. So quick digression on the New York Dolls. They fucking ruled. Do you know New York Dolls? Uh Uh-huh. So they had songs like Personality Crisis, Looking for a Kiss, but also, weirdly, their singer, this is like one of the weirder things that happened. Their uh, lead singer, is his real name is David Johansson, also had a hit in the 90s under the pseudonym Buster Poindexter. Buster Poindexter. Do you remember the Buster Poindexter song? I, I don't, but we're going to listen to it. You can jog my memory. <laughs> so Buster Poindexter had a huge, massive song in the 90s and he was the singer of the new york dolls in the 70s and then like completely rebranded himself i'm literally just he this is like a mini lyrics for lunch inside of lyrics for lunch (laughs) there's no words so this is so this is not his original song this song was uh, first ri- written and recorded by uh, a musician named Arrow in 1982, but this was like the 
the one the that hit. was famous? Yeah, yeah. So that peaked at 59 on the UK charts, 45 on the on the uh, I'm sorry, 59 on the UK singles chart, but Buster Poindexter's peaked at 11. Wow. Oh my god, this is so racist. Yes. But also, the singer from the New York Dolls, and he even starts the video by being like, I know. the New York <laughs> Dolls fucking sucked. <laughs> that was... Okay, mind blown. <laughs> All right. Is that so, Bill Murray? Yes. Oh my god. Because he's also in Scrooged. He's the ghost of Christmas future in Scrooged. Or past. Buster Poindexter? Yes. <laughs> David Johansson. <laughs> Fantastic. All right. <sighs> okay. So, <laughs> Malcolm temporarily is is managing and promoting the New York Dolls. And then he returns to London in May of 75. And he was inspired by the punk scene that was emerging in New York, particularly the Ramones, Richard Hell and the Voidoids, television, New York Dolls. And so he began taking a greater interest in the members of the Strand, right? The, the band that he was managing in, in England. So as he returns to his shop, which has now been rebranded sex, <laughs> the facade has been changed, including a four foot sign of pink foam rubber letters spelling sex. Love it. The interior was covered with graffiti and chicken wire. Rubber curtains uh, covered the walls. Red carpeting was installed. They sold fetish and bondage wear supplied by existing specialist labels but most of the new stuff was designed by mclaren and vivian westwood together okay so mclaren is also designing it at this point that's what he says right that's what (laughs) his version of events exactly um so in addition to the t-shirts with the cambridge rapist's face hood uh semi-naked cowboys as i mentioned before there was shirts that just had pornographic texts from from like a book and some of the designs were clear plastic pocketed jeans and zippered tops and the anarchy shirt the anarchy shirt just used a bunch of dead stock from a 1960s manufacturer named Wemblex, and they bleached them and dyed them and adorned them with Karl Marx patches and anarchist slogans, right? Mm-hmm. So in addition to the burgeoning members of the Strand, who, spoilers, will eventually become the Sex Pistols, other notable patrons are Chrissy Hine from The Pretenders, Adam Ant, Marco Peroni, Susie Sue of Susie and the Banshees, Stephen Severin, and the rest of the Bromley contingent, which is just like a group of followers of the Sex Pistols. That was like their their version of the Deadheads. The Bromley contingent. <laughs> but you're saying these are the people that wore the clothes? That, that would just like frequent the shop. This is the shop became like a hangout. Okay. So after the Sex Pistols become the Sex Pistols, they have this group of groupies. The Called Bromley the Bromley contingent. Contenders, and they hang out there. But they, but they were, I think, known as the Bromley contingent beforehand, and they just like became followers of the Sex Pistols once the Sex, Sex Pistols became a thing. Speaking of, quote McLaren, we decided that we needed mannequins to model our clothes, and that's when we invented the Sex Pistols, with Johnny doing his audition right there in the shop. How? How, how did, does one become the other? So they wanted p- 
he, they wanted to create a popular band to model their clothing out ah. in, in the rest of London. When you said mannequin, I was not thinking model. <laughs> yeah, li- the, I don't think he means literal mannequins, but this is how he views them, right? He views the members of the Sex Pistols as his mannequins. Ah. So here's how this happened. In August of 75, Bernard Rhodes, who is McLaren's BFF, spotted 19-year-old John Lydon wearing a Pink Floyd t-shirt with the words, I hate, written above the band's name. Right. And there were holes scratched in the, through the eyes. Love it. And so that day or soon after, either Rhodes or McLaren asked John Lydon to come to a nearby pub and meet Steve Jones and Cook, the members of the strand Mm -hmm. and according to jones he came in with green hair quote i thought he had a really interesting face i liked his look his i hate pink he had his i hate pink floyd t-shirt on and it was held together with safety pins john had something special but when he started talking he was a real asshole oh unlike anyone else in this story right um but when the pub closed the group moved to sex where john who had given a little thought to who had given little thought to singing was convinced to improvise along to alice cooper's i'm 18 on the shop jukebox just like hanging out yeah okay he's just like singing along with the jukebox great and the performance drove the band's members to laughter the he fucking sucked ass okay but malcolm convinced them to start rehearsing with johnny anyway oh well because they're just trying to sell clothes, man. They're just mannequins. Who cares? They're anti. They're they're anti. So, so now we're at. So now the members of the the new band. Let's call them the new band for now. Are John Lydon, Glenn Matlock, Steve Jones, and Paul Cook, all members of the Strand, aka the Swankers. So the group's name was provided by McLaren in a partial promotion of the boutique, the Sex Pistols. McLaren later said the name derived, quote, from the idea of a pistol, like a pinup, like a young thing, a better looking assassin. Not oh. given to modesty, false or otherwise, he then added, I launched the idea in the form of a band of kids who could be perceived as being bad. I launched a band with an idea of kids who could be perceived as being bad? Yeah. That's- I launched the idea in the form of a band of kids who could per- be perceived as being bad or hard, you know, like rude. How old are these rude kids? Like 18. It, this just doesn't seem novel to me. Well, it was at the time. Okay. So John Lydon later described the social context in which this band came together. Quote, I'm not going to do the voice. Oh, man. Early 70s Britain was a very depressing place. It was completely run down. There was trash on the streets, total unemployment. Just about everyone was on strike. Everybody was brought up with an education system that told you to point that told you point blank that if you came from the wrong side of the tracks, then you had no hope in hell, no career prospects at all. And out of that came pretentious moi and the sex pistols. And then a whole bunch of copycat wankers after us. <laughs> Fun fact. So I kind of agree with this, right? Like I, I like I like bands that tra- that try to like transcend so like or call attention to the social and economic conditions that they were brought up in, right? For sure. Fun fact. At this point, his name is John Lydon, but most people know him as Johnny Rotten. Johnny Rotten got that name because of his poor dental hygiene. Oh God, that's fucking disgusting. <laughs> 
Many other proto-punk bands or proto-punks of the time jammed with the Sex Pistols to maybe join, but they took one look at Johnny and was like, fuck this. <gasps> well, can you imagine the smell? Uh, I can. He was, <laughs> and, and he was an asshole, right? He was an asshole with like horrid breath. Oh, oh, oh. Okay. So they have their first gig and they were supporting a, ba- a rock band called Bazooka Joe, which is a great band name. They played their first gig November 6th, 1975. And they played a couple of covers, a couple of originals. And the bassist from Bazooka Joe, whose name was Stuart Goddard, was really impressed by the Sex Pistols. And he eventually quit that band, Bazooka Joe, and, and renamed himself Adam Ant. So this is the first of many musical acts that were inspired by the Sex Pistols. Are you familiar with Adam Ant? Negative. Uh, Adam Ant sang Goody Two Shoes. never heard this in my life you absolutely have <laughs> you really like this is not this ringing part, any bells this part is this part is okay i was like <laughs> jesus christ okay so so adam ant was the literally the first person inspired by the sex pistols that we know about that we know about well okay. it was at their first gig so the band had played only a couple small shows before getting signed with a large advance by EMI in 1976. I say this all the time on this show. It was very easy to get a record contract back in the 70s. <laughs> right. You do say that all the time. But after a notorious appearance on an early evening television show hosted by Bill Grundy, uh, they were fired. What we do have is the footage of that television appearance. Oh, yay. So this is... The Grundy Show Incident. This is from January 12th, 1976. So the Pistols are appearing on the show with their, like, entourage. Not all of them are in the band. They are punk rockers. The new craze, they tell me. They are heroes, not the nice, clean Rolling Stones. You see, they are as drunk as I am. They are clean by comparison. They are a group called the Sex Pistols. I am told that that group have received £40,000 from a record company. Doesn't that seem uh, to be slightly opposed to their anti-materialistic view of life? Uh, really? Yeah, oh, yeah. Well, tell me more about it. fucking spent it, I don't know, have you? Yeah, yeah. so good. No one even heard that one, because he was drunk himself, and he wasn't paying attention. When he asked, well, what did you do to money? And I said, we fucking spent it. Well, tell me more about it. We fucking spent it, not we? I don't know, have you? Yeah, yeah. it's all gone. Really? Yep. Forty, really? Good mm-hmm. Lord. Now, oh, I want to know gosh, one thing. Me. Beethoven, Mozart, Bach, and Browns have all died. Bears, really? Oh, what what, what, what are we saying, sir? wonderful people. Are they? Oh, yes, they really turn us on. What do they do? Well, suppose they turn other people on. That's just their touch, really. And Ron, he slipped up and said shit under his breath. It's what? Nothing, a rude word. Next question. No, no. What was the rude word? Shit. What is it really? Good heavens. You frightened me to death. Oh, all right. See, what about you girls behind? If you notice that the dude standing over Steve Jones's shoulder is wearing a swastika armband. I was just looking at that guy. Your granddad. Are you worried or are you just enjoying yourself? Enjoying myself. Are you? Yeah. That's what I thought you were doing. I always wanted to meet you. Did you really? Yeah. Susie, she was just being like coy with him. And he said, oh, maybe we'll meet after. We'll meet after, shall we? 
You dirty son. You dirty old man. Steve completely understood that he was talking to a drunk, as you would a drunk in a pub, and he just topped him. Well, keep going, Chief. Keep going. Go on, you've got another five seconds. Say something outrageous. You dirty bastard. I just remember this fucking cunt just started provoking us, and we coated him off. Go on, again. You dirty fucker. What a clever boy. What a fucking rotter. Well, that's it for tonight. The other rocker, Abel, and I'm saying nothing else about him, will be back tomorrow. I'll be seeing you soon. I hope I'm not seeing you again. From me, though, good night. They're like clown children. Okay, so... This this television appearance did not go well. And so the pistols were fired by EMI and then immediately signed to A&M Records for another large advance, which they presumably spent immediately. Because <laughs> that contract lasted a week. Oh, my the gosh. Record company, <laughs> the record company. One week. The record company got cold feet after the band went on a drunken rampage, smashing up the A&M headquarters in celebration of their record contract. Oh, no. <laughs> a little too excited. Okay. So in February 1977, Malcolm McLaren announced that Glenn Matlock had been thrown out of the band, quote, because he liked the Beatles. Oh. <laughs> Is this your band? Yeah. <laughs> I know that I know that we get shit for mentioning the Beatles every time, but uh, this is this is for real. So McLaren, Malcolm McLaren announced that Glenn Matlock had been thrown out of the band because he liked the Beatles and that he'd been placed by a young man named Sid Vicious. Sid Vicious. Sid Vicious. So in his autobiography called, quote, I was a teenage sex pistol. Glenn Matlock says that he actually quit the band because he was, quote, sick of the bullshit. And in the 2000 documentary, the band members agree that there was tension between matlock and johnny rotten but matlock said that those tensions were aggravated by malcolm mclaren who wanted to generate chaos in the band as a quote creative mechanism and uh, and as a way of building the band's image so he wanted matlock to leave and to replace him with vicious saying if johnny rotten is the voice of punk sid vicious is the attitude Mm, brilliant Brilliant. Sid Vicious, by the way, was a, was a Sex Pistols Uber fan. He never missed a concert. And at the shows, he was encouraged to be drunk and disorderly. So one of them said, Sid was offered up as a sacrificial lamb by the people around the Pistols. None of them would have gone over the top, but he was their kamikaze pilot. And he was all too happy. They were all too happy to strap him in and send him off. Oh, God. So Sid's this 17-year-old kid. Sid Vicious is a 17-year-old kid at the time who is getting filled with alcohol and then like basically told to just go beat up people or start fights or go berserk right yes so later in 77 the young parentheses and brave richard branson signed the sex pistols to virgin and to another huge advance oh my goodness and to celebrate, Malcolm McLaren organized a boat trip down the Thames so that the Pistols could perform God Save the Queen outside of the Houses of Parliament. Love it. On the day that the Queen was celebrating her Silver Jubilee, <laughs> the boat was raided by the police and Malcolm McLaren was arrested. And they didn't get to perform? Oh, they performed and there is video. Hooray! Are we going to see the video? We are going to see the video. God Save the Queen was almost the song for the episode, by the way. And what made you go with Anarchy? Well, you'll see. Okay. It's kind of, it's both. It's like, a, it's like a twofer. So this isn't actually the live version. This is the recorded version of the song with footage of them playing 
on the Thames over top of it. On the land, we decided to play our tribute to the Queen from the river. Between the hours of 6 and 8 p.m., the Sex Pistols played their songs beneath the bridges of London. Cool, right? publicity did this have do we know a lot well I mean, so this this was supposed to generate the publicity so it wasn't that they wanted a, a million eyes on them for this performance they wanted a million eyes on this because of this performance The 
Sex Pistols' current record, God Save the Queen, is at number one in the capital hit line today. But the IBA, which administers the Broadcasting Act, has advised us that particularly at this time, this record is likely to cause offense to a number of our listeners and have asked us not to play it in our normal programming. However, we will be playing this record with the authorities' approval at 7.30 p.m. tonight on Brian Wolf's Open Line. And we welcome your views about the punk rock phenomenon. So let's do a quick uh, dramatic reading of the lyrics to God Save the Queen. Okay. I'll start this time. Great. God Save the Queen, the fascist regime. They made you a moron, a potential H-bomb. God Save the Queen. She's not a human being. And there's no future and England's dreaming. Don't be told what you want. Don't be told what you need. There's no future. No future for you. No future for you. <laughs> God save the queen. We mean it, man. We love our queen. God saves. God save the queen. Because tourists are money and our figurehead is not what she seems. Oh, God save history. God save your mad parade. Oh, Lord, God have mercy. All crimes are paid. Oh, when there's no future, how can there be sin? We are the flowers in the dustbin. We're the poison in your human machine. We're the future, your future. God save the queen. We mean it, man. We love our queen. God saves. God save the queen. We mean it, man. There's no future. In England's dreaming, God save the queen. No future. No future for you. <laughs> no future for me. <laughs> um, okay, so clearly there's like a focus to this. This feels like a protest song, right? Mm-hmm. And he's referring to the royals as a fascist regime and the queen as not a human being Correct. makes sense right it all it all kind of tracks right nothing we haven't heard before well before you go mistaking the sex pistols for a band that cares about anything this is from the telegraph quote malcolm mclaren i thought the fashion was much more important than the music he says of the sex pistols Punk was the sound of that fashion. It seems a contrary thing to say, but then he is a contrarian and the band was his baby. So I ask about the, the I being the writer. This is like a first person article, which is very annoying. Okay. So I ask about the, the, the reporter asked about the article, specifically the swastika t-shirt that Sid Vicious always wore at Malcolm McLaren's behest. At his McLaren's behest. Yes. In retrospect, does McLaren consider it to have been gratuitous and a sick provocation? Not at all. Ah. Does he think he could get away with it today? Probably not. But back then, we were still on the tip of 60s liberalism. The reporter says, I suppose what I'm getting at is, well, he was Jewish. Did he find the swastika repulsive? Not at all. I didn't give a damn about that. I thought it was just great. Did he give a damn about the Holocaust? He says, look. Sometimes a younger generation doesn't want to inherit the history of an older generation, so we wanted to appropriate the swastika for ourselves. We wanted to have a clean slate. We decided that we liked certain icons from the past and wanted to reinvent them. We were trying to mix pop culture with politics and art. Okay. Tell me more. Well, <laughs> again, I realize that this all happened a while back, but... Uh-huh. That's what art is always constantly doing. But he also just got done saying that he didn't care. Like, all he cared about was provocation. Right. Totally. And he's 
but that's his whole thing is just being contradictory. So it's like, why should we even care or listen to anything that he says? I 100% agree. But yeah, so so he's just trying to be provocative. But yeah, Sid Vicious always wore a swastika shirt, not because he was a Nazi or a, an anti-Jew, but because Malcolm McLaren was like, just, just do it, man. Just wear it. But it's weird because in the song we just listened to, God Save the Queen, he, they call the royals fascists. Right. And like you can't get more pro fascist than just like being a Nazi. Wearing a swastika. Yeah. Yeah. And the whole argument of like we were trying to take it back, I feel like is very, very flimsy. (laughs) Um, so this is the same telegraph article on the subject of politics i say the reporter says the thing i always found confusing about punk as a movement was that you had bands such as the clash wearing rock against racism badges we also talked a little bit about rock against racism in our clapton episode rock against racism badges at the same time as the sex pistols were wearing swastikas (laughs) malcolm mclaren has an answer for that of course quote well the rock against racism I was never really interested in. I thought it was too naff. It didn't annoy people enough. I wanted to be childish. I wanted to be everything society might hate. The idea of sounding sensible or serious would, was abhorrent to me. I was the ultimate mismanager because I was looking for ways to create chaos. The Sex Pistols were young and ignorant. They didn't have, a, they didn't have the political references. They have to be forgiven for that. But what they did have was raw energy. All the energy of Nevermind the Bollocks, which was their one and only album, was about desire for change. We wanted to create an artistic movement that would be like a political revolution. We wanted anarchy. It's easy to forget how grim things were in the 70s. The oil crisis, the three-day week, hyperinflation, unemployment. No wonder there was a disaffection, end quote. When he's saying we wanted anarchy, who is we? Who is we? But also, like, he just says, all I wanted to do was annoy people and be childish. But I also wanted to call attention to the plight of the working man. Like, which is it, buddy? It's not the plight of the working man. I'll tell you that much. Oh. As John Lydon, Johnny Rotten, later observed, Malcolm and Vivian were real pair of shysters. They would sell anything to any trend they could grab onto. So, a couple of things. Mm-hmm. I, I agree with what he's saying, but also he shouldn't use the word shyster. It's a bad word. <laughs> Ban it. Ban it. Well, so it's like, you know, it's a derogatory word for Jews. Um, but like, it's interesting that he's like, Malcolm and Vivian didn't stand for anything. Just like a couple of Jews. Do you think that's really what he meant? I, I mean, that, whether or not that's exactly what he meant, that's what he's saying. And I think it, it is entirely possible if that's what he meant i don't know for sure we'll talk a little bit more about johnny in a minute if you if you're if you're thinking that johnny might be your hero think again <laughs> just trying to find someone to grab onto here it's not him also i 100 <laughs> percent did not know that shysty meant jew yeah shyster is like a jew a, a, a derogatory term for a jew so i've had people say that say it in front of me not knowing which is fine i mean it's like things happen like that all the time like uh you know, there are certain words that we're trying to take back, oh, take away from our cultural lexicon, like mm-hmm. eeny, meeny, miny, mo, or call a spade a spade. Call a spade. Oh, that's a fucking bad one. But people don't know. People I know, don't... I know. But that one, that one's like pretty fucking bad. Oh, I know. How, how could you say that, Nancy? <laughs> I'm sorry. Please forgive me. Trying to call attention to things we should not say. I just learned one. It's shysty. <laughs> yeah. So, 
also in 1977, Sid Vicious met a woman named Nancy Spungen. Nancy! So this is, this is what people probably thought we were going to be talking about a lot today. Um, Nancy was an American groupie living in London who had a history of psychological problems and was also a heroin addict. How old was she? She was, I think, in her late teens as okay. well. Nancy originally had her sights set on Johnny Rotten, and she supported herself alternately by dealing drugs and working as a topless dancer, which is like, do what you got to do, man. Do what you got to do. Sure. I support people doing what they want to do. But did she really want to? She's a child. Probably. Yeah, probably decision. But she but she got she made kind of a name for herself in the King's Road scene because she got drugs for musicians. Okay. So she and Sid Vicious became inseparable, which caused problems within the band. The members did not like her. And McLaren admitted to planning to have her abducted and forced (gasps) onto a plane back to the U.S. What? He was going to have her abducted and and just shipped back off to the U.S. By who? So he was just going to hire someone to do it. Just a rando. Yeah. What? It could have gone horribly awry. Yeah, it definitely could. But guess what? <laughs> so this is that that's from biography.com, NME, and the Daily Beast article all all reference that incident that never actually happened, but he was planning on doing it. Okay. So the two had a strange relationship. So you could uh, just say sorry, I'm sorry, I just got hung up on this. You can just admit that you plan to have someone abducted and like you're fine. Well, I think he may have admitted that after Nancy died. Okay. Are you gonna so, tell are you gonna tell that story? Yeah, we're going through the whole Sid and Nancy story right now. Right. Woo-hoo. So Sid and Nancy had a, a strange relationship. Vicious played nursemaid when she was sick, and he was shy and polite with her mother, who reported Why was she sick? Because she was a junkie? Yeah, when she was a junkie. Okay. And the mother reported watching Nancy cut Sid's meat for him, like at meals. Oh, that's a little weird. Kinky. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and on the other hand, on her bad days, Nancy was known to be verbally abusive, physically aggressive, and (sighs) Sid may have facilitated Nancy's occasional prostitution and maybe watched. Maybe. Perhaps. There's a small chance. Facilitated (laughs) for the the heroin money and it's like two different, scratching two different itches, right? Sure. According to Johnny Rotten's wife, Nora Foster, Sid often hit Nancy, and in her last conversation with her mother, Nancy admitted that the beatings, which she had previously said were at the hands of strangers, actually came from Sid. And they both shared an infatuation with knives. Okay, hold up. You're, you're a mother. Your daughter yeah. is beaten up, and yes. she says that she's repeatedly getting beat up from strangers. Yes. And you're just like, sounds legit. Well, I think because they were in, they were in England, and the mom was in New York. Like, I, I don't think that she could have really done anything. I mean, she could have hopped on a plane, I guess, but like, it was probably prohibitively expensive. Okay. So, they, and they both shared an infatuation with knives. Yes. They both shared an infatuation with knives. So what did they do? Did they have knife throwing contests? Did they like I, slice a lot of peaches? I think peach that they they so together? so they're the knife knife kink is when <laughs> didn't think we'd have to do this today. Um I think that they would like rub knives on each other during during sex or during like intimacy. You didn't think we were gonna have to do that today. 
I didn't think that we were going to have to rub knives on each other now. <laughs> so beginning in July of 77, the band went on a Scandinavian tour. They, they toured Holland, the UK, um, and they ha- still don't have a record. They still don't have a record out. Because but they can't they, even hold down a record contract? No, because they can't. No. Yeah. And uh, they brought Nancy on tour with them. On October 28th, 1977, their only album comes out. The album is called Never Mind the Bollocks, Here's the Sex Pistols. And it was released and due to in part to the notoriety of what had already happened, like playing God Save the Queen on the Thames. Mm-hmm. Um, the album debuted at number one on the UK charts and went gold in, a, in less than a month. But this was in spite of sales bans at basically every major retailer. That's quite the feat. Pretty, pretty cool, right? Yeah. Word of mouth. So it remained a bestseller for nearly a year, and it spent 48 weeks on the top 75. And it is frequently listed as the most influential punk album of all time. The most. The, mo- mean, the, the yeah. single most. Yeah. I, I disagree, but... What do you think is the single most? Maybe London Calling, mm-hmm. or maybe the Ramones. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, or maybe, like, the Velvet Underground, like, proto-punk. I don't know. There's a, there's a lot of really great albums. I just don't particularly care for the Sex Pistols music. Yeah, and I, I think you know, I, I think you can probably decipher at this point. I think that like the things that people thought that they stood for, they didn't stand for, and so all the other bands who like thought that they were the voice of a generation and took up their own mantle, like the Clash, which we'll hear about in a second, they actually believed in this stuff, and I don't think the Sex Pistols ever did. Right, they're just puppets for Malcolm. Right. So, in January of 78, the Sex Pistols embarked on a two-week U.S. tour. There was rising tension within the band. Johnny Rotten was barely speaking to anybody. (laughs) Warner Brothers organized and staffed the tour, insisted that Sid clean up his heroin habit, so he was using methadone on tour. We had methadone back then? I think so. I think it was, like, new. Okay. And he was a con- so he was in a constant state of semi withdrawal and furious that the band had blocked Nancy from going on tour with them. Oh, I thought she was going on tour. With she them. was on she was on the European tour with them, and they're like not not again because if Nancy's there, Nancy's going to get them drugs. Okay, right. So the band bans Nancy from the tour, puts it on methadone, so he's in withdrawal without his partner who is also his enabler and so he's fucking pissed <laughs> and mclaren had had long been keeping sid vicious on rations so he was paying him 14 dollars a week 14 dollars a week yes in 1978 to be in the sex pistols well what was anyone else getting paid more <laughs> <laughs> But that was that was a concerted effort to try to keep him off of drugs, which didn't work. He found drugs anyway. So fourteen dollars a week in nineteen in nineteen seventy eight is sixty two dollars and seventy six cents in today's money. Okay. So he's making less than ten dollars a day to and be on he's tour. Seventeen? Still? No, no, he's older now. I think he okay. was seventeen when he like fell in love with the Sex Pistols. Okay. But he's he's I think nineteen twenty now. If you looked, if you looked at them when they're in that video, either on the the, sh- the Glenn Burke show or in that God Save the Queen video, like they're children. They're yeah. so fucking young. Yeah. So uh, McLaren had long been keeping Sid Vicious on rations of fourteen dollars a week, but Sid still managed to find drugs. 
To make matters worse, Malcolm, ever eager for more chaos and careful that journalists were on the scene, booked the band not at the, in the clubs of New York, right? New York is where the punk scene's growing, so clearly that's where they're supposed to play. He actually booked them in bars in Louisiana, Georgia, Tennessee, and Texas. Why? Just... Because he's a fucking asshole. And because he wanted these newspapers to be like sex pistols beat up in biker, beat up dudes in biker bar in San Antonio. Like he wanted them to get into fights every night because it was good for business. He didn't want them to be like amongst their own people. Correct. Because he wanted he wanted their whatever, their personas to be badasses that got in fights everywhere. Okay. He's just trying to sell t-shirts, man. It's all about the t-shirts. It's all about the t-shirt. So in San Antonio on January 8th, Sid Vicious felt antagonized by an audience member and struck him on the head with his bass. Mm. This is this is before the Sex Pistols took the stage of the show. Oh, before the show even started. Yeah. In 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 Dallas on January 10th at the Longhorn Ballroom, right before they went on, Sid Vicious carved the words, give me a fix into his chest with a razor. <gasps> oh my God, that's disturbing to me. And later he joked, if you try to kill yourself with a razor to the chest, it won't work. Oh my goodness, this is sad. Um, so I'm going to bleep this out, this next part. He then greeted the audience by calling them cowboy f- what where was he dallas dallas okay in return he got a full can of beer to the head so he's bleeding out of the chest he's bleeding out of the chest now he's bleeding out of the head and everyone in the bar wants to kill him okay so he's suicidal uh-huh because he's he's he is in withdrawal too he's either junked up or having withdrawal right. it's it's bad it's really bad so the next night, January 11th, he punched a hole in the green room wall after the band's show in Tulsa, and it was long rumored at their January 14th show in San Francisco that Sid did not bother to plug in his bass at all. Oh. Um, but the video from the show makes it clear that Sid was playing the bass and playing the right notes. So okay. it may have been that he, not that he didn't bother, but that he just like was too fucked up to do it. Like he just didn't not feeling better about that the other the other theory is there's a pre-show sound check audio recording where johnny tells sid to turn down because his bass was too loud so that may, it may have been like a like oh you want me to turn down i'll turn yeah, all the way turn down, it right you know? off yeah and so this is the show at the end of the show johnny rotten uttered the now famous quote ever get the feeling you've been cheated because that was the end of the sex pistols their last show was January 14th at the Winterland Ballroom in San Francisco, the show where Sid didn't bother to plug in his bass or turned it all the way down or was too fucked up to figure out how to plug it in. The show was horrible. Johnny Rotten ended the show by saying, ever get the feeling you've been cheated and walked off stage. And that was the end of the Sex Pistols. Forever. Well, kind of. Not really. <laughs> On January 19th, Sid Vicious boarded a flight from San Francisco back to New York, and by the time the plane landed in JFK Airport, he had slipped into a coma. He had slipped into a coma uh, on the plane. On the airplane, fueled by diazepam, methadone, and alcohol. Okay. And so he was rushed to a hospital in Queens where a doctor told him that if he did not quit drinking, he would be dead in six months. And what did he say? 
Uh, he he didn't say much, but Nancy picked him up from the hospital. Okay, and then so, and then <laughs> so then we then we have a pause. We're in January of 1978. So meanwhile, just as the Sex Pistols were imploding and taking a bunch of people with them, Malcolm McLaren has an idea for a movie. Mm. It was called The Great Rock and Roll Swindle. And for a band that fucking hates the Beatles, this is basically just a Hard Day's Night ripoff. Fantastic. It's a, it's a mockumentary directed by Julian Temple, who also directed the Jim Carrey, Gina Davis, Jeff Goldblum classic Earth Girls Are Easy. And the film centers around the Sex Pistols and more prominently Malcolm McLaren. <laughs> So the plot is guitarist Steve Jones plays a shady private detective who, through a series of set pieces, uncovers the truth about the band. Drummer Paul Cook and bassist Sid Vicious play smaller roles, and Malcolm McLaren is featured as, quote unquote, the embezzler, the man who manipulates the sex pistols. Wow. So he just outed himself. Yeah. He (laughs) can't stop telling on himself. And they, they all did this. They all did, they made the film. Not all of them. Singer and frontman Johnny Rotten refused to have anything to do with the film, stating that it was a pile of rubbish and quote Malcolm's vision of what he believed not true in any form. Good, great, wonderful. Well, once again, before you before you start to believe in Johnny for too long, I'm just trying to I'm just trying to t- lower your expectations. <laughs> It seems that Malcolm replaced Johnny with actual fugitive train robber Ronnie Biggs. In the film. In the film. Ronnie Biggs was an English criminal who helped carry out the great train robbery of 1963. And he escaped from prison in 1965. Wow. And he just got hired. How does Malcolm know him? I don't know. I mean, (laughs) I, I suppose it makes sense because he like you know everyone's got this uh this repu- like reputation of being like hard and criminals and violent and blah 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 but biggs recorded two vocals on f- recorded vocals on two songs for the great rock and roll swindle so it seems as though they were going to try to replace johnny rotten who had walked from the band with actual, actual fugitive train robber <laughs> ronnie biggs but well, I don't know, man. <laughs> let's take a let's t- watch let's watch the trailer for the great rock and roll swindle. Okay. What what could go right? <laughs> At last, the film you thought you'd never have to see. There's Sid's swastika t-shirt. The staggering story of the punk group that wrung the neck of rock and roll. So they intercut actual footage of the Sex Pistols playing with the this weird plot. Like that's real Johnny in that shot. That's real Johnny right there. Right. So you haven't seen this? No, I couldn't. I couldn't bring myself to watch well, it. it. What do you mean? It looks so good. So, <laughs> the great rock and roll swindle is not available anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> They stuck a safety pin through Her Majesty's nose and turned the national press into an occupied zone. Sex 
So the VHS tape for the great rock and roll swindle is available on Amazon for $119. Oh, super affordable. Yeah. And the the DVD is out of stock, if you can believe it. I can. It's like so difficult to understand what's going on. It really is. I can't believe this got made. I mean, I guess because Sex Pistols were so huge, but like, was Malcolm rich? I mean, he was rich because he. There's a dude just dressed as a Nazi. Uh, he was rich because he sold, never mind the box, for 48 weeks straight. Mm. This just gives me the creeps. Yeah, this is a very weird. Uh, like I don't like I don't know, man. I don't know what they were like trying to accomplish with this. I know they were trying to make money, but like, w- w- how did they think this was ever going to make money? So the film tells a stylized fictional account of the formation, rise, and subsequent breakup of the Sex Pistols from the point of view of Malcolm McLaren. In the film, McLaren claims to have created the Sex Pistols and manipulated them to the top of the music business, using them as puppets to both further his own agenda, in his own words, cash from chaos, and to claim financial rewards from their various record labels that the band was signed to during their brief existence, EMI, A&M, Virgin, and then Warner Brothers in the United States. The film itself was funded of course, by McLaren funneling all of the band's earnings into the budget. Johnny Rotten was not pleased with that either. Well, I can imagine not. <laughs> so in April of, tw- of 20, uh, April of 1978, Sid Vicious and Nancy traveled to Paris to film The Great Rock and Roll Swindle, and they spent most of the time in their hotel room doing drugs. Julian Temple, the director, was able to get Sid to attend production long enough to record three songs come on everybody something else and a version of frank sinatra's my way which is i would consider the most famous sid vicious sung song Mm -hmm. when vicious returned to his hotel he found that nancy had retaliated for being left alone for so long by superficially cutting her wrists superficially superficially in that they were not she wasn't going to die right The couple then traveled to London, where by August, they needed to return to the U.S., but they didn't have any money. Then, weirdly, Sid bumped into former Sex Pistols bassist Glenn Matlock, the guy that was kicked out for liking the Beatles. (laughs) At this point, (laughs) normal, totally normal. (laughs) By this point, Glenn had founded a band called The Rich Kids, and he suggested that they play a gig together. And for the concert, Sid Vicious and Glenn Matlock recruited rich kid guitarist and singer Steve New and the and a drummer from the band called The Damned, who's like another famous mm-hmm. kind of horror punk band. Yeah. And the drummer's name was Rat Scabies. Oh, love it. And the band called themselves Vicious White Kids. And they only performed once at the Electric Ballroom in Camden Town in England on August 15th, 1978. Sid did not play the bass in the band. He was the lead singer. And Nancy joined on his backing vocals. But <laughs> Matlock made sure that her microphone was not plugged in for the concert. Ah, fantastic. But this gave them enough money to return to New York. Right? This show paid them enough money to, to, to go back to New York. They settled into room 100 of the Hotel Chelsea after causing a fire in their first room. They, they started a fire? In their first room, yeah. Okay, okay. And then they settled into room 100 as Mr. and Mrs. John Ritchie. And Nancy acted as Sid's manager 
and tried to put together a new band for him and they they she booked him at Max's Kansas City and CBGB's two very famous New York punk venues of the time and they were sometimes joined by Mick Jones and Johnny Thunders other other kind of punk proto punk people of New York they drew large crowds and some performances were quote hellish with the audiences booing his his imitation of Johnny Rotten when Sid tried to sing Sex Pistols songs. Mm, loyalists. You can you can actually hear examples of him impersonating Johnny Rotten on the live album that he released called Sid Sings, which is uh, a, a live performance at Max's Kansas City in New York in 1978. How did that album do? Not great. <laughs> <laughs> So Vicious got good money for these shows, but Nancy often had to call her parents for money. And in one of those conversations, she said that she was having problems with her kidneys. And she asked her mother to look into getting her and Sid into a detox program. So from April until October, they lived in the Hotel Chelsea and played shows and did a bunch of drugs. But on the night of October 11th, 1978, you know if I'm going to use the exact date and time we're going to with some something fucked up's about to happen Mm -hmm. sid and nancy hosted a party in their hotel room during which sid took approximately 32 in all tablets i don't know what the recommended dosage is but less than 30 sure and numerous people came and went but he was comatose for the rest of the night at about 11 a.m the next morning the hotel staff found nancy dead on the bathroom floor with a knife wound to her abdomen sid was found wandering the hallway he first claimed to have killed her and then said he remembered nothing. Two people who had been at the party stated that Nancy was alive at 5 a.m. when they left, and the murder weapon was identified as a Jaguar K-11 hunting knife, which Nancy had purchased for Sid a few days earlier. Sid was arrested and charged with second-degree murder, and he told the police that he and Nancy had argued that night but gave conflicting versions of what happened, saying, I stabbed her, but I never meant to kill her, and then saying that he did not remember anything and that Nancy had fallen onto the knife. Mm. As, as one does. As one does. Because <laughs> the knife is like sitting face <laughs> blade up. Yeah. Later, the arresting officer, whose name is Thomas Kilroy, was quoted as saying, after an investigation, Vicious admitted to killing Miss Spungen during a dispute. So the lawyer, Sid's lawyer is this dude, Michael Berger, until Malcolm McLaren went lawyer shopping. Oh. So this is Malcolm McLaren's wet fucking dream, right? Yes. I because, was just thinking about that. <laughs> exactly. So he, he told you he wasn't going to fucking be gone for long. So they interviewed several high-profile lawyers, including Melvin Belli, who is who you might remember from the Zodiac Killer case. Mm, yep. Mm-hmm. Gerard B. Lefcourt, who I don't know who that is. William Kunstler, activist known for defending the Chicago 7. Mm-hmm. And F. Lee Bailey. Which one did they choose? <laughs> F. Lee Bailey, by the way, was the defense attorney for the Boston Strangler and O.J. Simpson. Which one did they choose? <laughs> Which one did they choose? <laughs> Who do you think? F. Lee Bailey. F. Lee Bailey. But he never appeared in court. <laughs> and why is that? He sent another lawyer from his firm. <laughs> so they, they, they settled on F. Lee Bailey, but Bailey never appeared in court. Another lawyer from his firm named Jim Merberg arranged for Sid to be released on $50,000 bail with the condition that he didn't leave New York and that he sign in daily at the 
police station, right? So he goes to the police station every day, signs in to make sure that he hasn't skipped mm-hmm. bail. Mm-hmm. And he has to also sign in at the Lafayette Street Methadone Clinic. Okay. All legal costs were paid by the Sex Pistols record label. Really? And Sid Vicious returned to the Chelsea Hotel where he was joined by his mother and Malcolm McLaren. Quote, Malcolm firmly believed that Vicious was innocent. No, dude. No, No. he didn't. No, he did not. (laughs) No, he fucking didn't. (laughs) Malcolm noted that the knife was left in plain view and that the couple kept cash in the drawer. He believed that Nancy caught one of the party guests stealing money and was stabbed by that person. And given the number of people who had been through the hotel on one on the night of the murder, F. Lee Bailey had his investigator look into the possibility that a third party was involved in Nancy's death. Not to accuse Nancy, who cannot defend herself, being that she was most likely murdered. Mm, she was definitely murdered, most likely by Sid. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if she's this tripping and falling thing is. That's legs. definitely not true. But is there any chance she stabbed herself? Um, I think that they would have been able to tell that forensically. Yeah. But yeah, you're right. Who who actually who the fuck knows? Okay. Um, F. Lee Bailey hired forensic psychologist. So, sorry, forensic psychiatrist, Dr. Stephen Tyke, to evaluate Sid. After their initial conversation, during which Sid was preoccupied by the working class in Berlin and remained fixated on the television, Tyke told Anne Beverly, Sid's mom, that Sid must not be left alone. Hours later, Beverly called Tyke and said that Sid had slashed his arm with a, sla- with a smashed light bulb. Tyke returned to the hotel and called the ambulance, EMS staff arrived with the police and when sid saw them he headed for the window to jump but was blocked by tyke he was taken to bellevue and then moved to new york presbyterian hospital in westchester their behavioral health center white plains new york and he was released on november 26 1978 he returned to chelsea he returned to the chelsea hotel at this time johnny he needs rotten to stop going back to the chelsea yes he certainly does but the chelsea equals drugs right so <laughs> This time, Johnny Rotten tried to contact Sid, but his calls were barred by Sid's mom and Malcolm. On November 28th, Sid was interviewed by the Irish journalist Bernard Clark, and he said that Nancy's death was, quote, meant to happen. And that Nancy said, Nancy always said she'd die before she turned 21. Wow. He said that he just wanted to have fun. When asked where he would like to be, he replied, under the ground. Okay, he's not doing so good. In the meantime, Malcolm McLaren announced that the Sex Pistols would reunite to record a Christmas album to benefit Sid's defense fund. And, they, and he sold t-shirts with the slogan, I'm alive, she's dead, I'm yours. Wow, okay, bold, bold move. He doesn't care about anything, man. He doesn't care. And a Christmas album, really? Right, clearly that's like. <laughs> the Sex Pistols were, in fact, hugely influential. The Clash had their first show opening for the Sex Pistols on July, on weirdly July 4th, 1975. And one of the founding members of the Bugs, Buzzcocks saw the Sex Pistols, which is what inspired him to start the Buzzcocks. We already talked about Adam Ant, Susie and the Banshees. Pete Townsend of The Who, who was not inspired by the Sex Pistols because they were before them, said, 
Quote, when you listen to the Sex Pistols, to Anarchy in the UK, and Bodies, and tracks like that, what immediately strikes you is that this is actually happening. This is a bloke with a brain on his shoulders who is actually saying something he sincerely believes is happening in the world, and saying it with real venom and real passion. It touches you, and it scares you. It makes you feel uncomfortable, like someone saying, the Germans are coming, and there's no way to stop them. Mm, except they didn't believe it at all. Except for they didn't believe it at all. After leaving the Sex Pistols, Johnny Rotten reverted to his birth name, John Lydon. And he and formed... he got dental work. He Maybe. <laughs> uh, he, he formed a band called Public Image LTD with a former Clash member, Keith Levine, and a school friend named Ja Wobble, who some of the quotes were of ja, from Ja Wobble, but I didn't want to explain who Ja Wobble was. Oh, the band went on to score a top 10 UK hit with their debut single from 1978 called Public Image. So we're going to take a look, take a listen to Public Image. So this is the same year that the Pistols break up. Johnny starts a new band called Public Image and they have a top 10 UK hit. Hello. 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 This sounds like the replacements to me. Remind me what year this was? 78, same year that the Pezzles broke up. But this is like, this feels like an entirely different universe to me. Yeah, well, it's it's clearly like heading towards the 80s. Right. And it still has a little bit of that punk cadence, but like, yeah, this is a weird one. Meanwhile, Sid releases his cover of My Way as a single. So we can take a listen to My Way. Okay. You, have you heard Sid's version of My Way? Yes. But it's, let's hear it. Um, not great. from the great French people, I think he's also making fun of Sit of Johnny. Well, 
what happened to Sid. <sighs> On the morning of February 1st, 1979, after completing a detox program, Sid was released from Rikers Island, where he arrived in Manhattan. And by chance, he met a friend named Gravel. Sid asked Gravel to find him some heroin. Gravel said that they sat around doing drugs until he left at three in the morning and Vicious died that night of a drug overdose. In the 90s, there was a movie about Sid and Nancy called Sid and Nancy starring Gary Oldman and Courtney Love. Mm -hmm. Gary Oldman as Sid Vicious. One of the better performances of, uh, of Oldman's career, if I'm being honest. Now, I haven't seen this one, but it sounds like I should watch it. It's it's good. I mean, he definitely is a junkie, and you know, Courtney Love is definitely Nancy in it. How old is Sid when he dies? So Sid Vicious was born May nineteen fifty seven and died February of seventy nine. So he was twenty one and a half. The question is, does Malcolm feel any responsibility at all for Sid's death? I can't even find a quote. Hmm. Like, I think, I mean, I think that Malcolm it doesn't feel responsibility for Sid's death because Malcolm does not feel responsibility for anything. Hmm. Um, but I, I, don't, I don't know for sure because I don't have any quotes. Okay. This is from The Telegraph. The Sex Pistols were defined by ambitions that went well beyond the musical. Indeed, Malcolm McLaren was at times openly contemptuous of the band's music and punk rock generally. Quote, Christ, if people bought the records for the music, this thing would have died a death a long time ago. He said this in 1977. When it was brand new. Yeah, yeah. He's saying like if, if things, if people just bought records because the music was good, the Sex Pistols never would have gone anywhere. But they did. Which is, which is true, because they're not good. <laughs> <laughs> he claimed that the Sex Pistols were his personal situationist style art project. Quote, I decided to use people just the way a sculptor uses clay. Punk became the most important cultural phenomenon in the late 20th century. He later asserted, punk's authenticity stands out against karaoke ersatz culture of today, where everything and everyone is for sale. Punk's not, never was for sale. Wait, wasn't? Wasn't he selling it? Yep. <laughs> they were something with which to sell trousers, as he said in 1989. <laughs> A carefully planned exercise to embezzle as much money as possible out of the music industry. As John Savage characterizes McLaren's core theme in The Great Rock and Roll Swindle Cash from Chaos. John Lydon dismissed Malcolm's influence quote we made our own scandal just by being ourselves maybe it was that he knew he was redundant so he overcompensated all the talk about french situationalists and being associated with punk is bollocks it's all nonsense mclaren claimed that the sex pistols the name was his the all the ideas were his the songs were his even though johnny rotten wrote the music and wrote the lyrics so there was like a bunch of lawsuits about royalties and stuff between Johnny Rotten, Johnny, John Lydon, and Malcolm McLaren. Okay. This is from the Washington Post from J.D. Considine. The article is called The Singular Malcolm McLaren. This is the beginning of the article. Malcolm McLaren can't sing, doesn't play an instrument, and isn't a songwriter in the traditional sense, which is an odd combination of talents for a recording artist to lack. 
His musical failings are more than balanced by his conceptual genius, however, for when it comes to playing with ideas, Malcolm McLaren is a virtuoso. Unable to compose his own melodies, McLaren takes the most obvious alternative, stealing from others. But by dropping his pilfered pop songs into settings that radically redefine them, he manages to transform plagiarism into art. Now, how is this different from the Lou Pearlman story? It isn't. Okay. So, interestingly enough, the, re- the, the last request that came in for Malcolm McLaren was because Sonia thought that we were going to go to McLaren after we talked about Lou Pearlman. Ah. So, after the Sex Pistols broke up, in 1982, Malcolm McLaren visits Johannesburg in South Africa, and he hears a song called Pulang by a band called the Boyoyo Boys, who played a musical styling called Mbakanga. Mbakanga. So, this is the Boyoyo Boys. You fucking, you know I love talking about plagiarism in music. Yeah. <laughs> this is just kind of like a fun. Mm-hmm. It like feels a little talking headsy because they do this kind of Afrobeat stuff later too. So Malcolm completely plagiarizes this song for his song Double Dutch. Oh, I can't wait. Whoa. It's just the song. It's just the same song. This is like pre-sampling, but this is basically what they did was they just like took it and sped it up a little bit. So there there's Malcolm just like in the middle of all these Young That's black him? kids for some reason, yeah. He looks like Carrot Top. Well, tell me what you're hearing. Exact same song. Exact same song. Right? Yeah. Plagiarist extraordinaire, right? So, moving on. Is he the one singing about high school girls? I think so. It's like a sing rapping. I think that's him. Okay, horrible. But it's not like his whole record was plagiarized. Oh, wait. Yes, it was. The flip side of the record is called Zulus on a Time Bomb. And it's also from the musical Tsotsi. Um, <laughs> and the song On the Road to Soweto was lifted from a General MD Shirinda and the Gaza Sisters song called Hey Majiji, Majaji. And two songs were taken from the Mohotela Queens with Tina. Oh, my God. Can't even do it. Uh, with a song called Tina Saya Kanyisa becoming a song called Jive My Baby and Garibi Tsaga Mothusi becoming a song called Punk It Up. Oh, Punk It Up. You know that song, Punk It Up? No, I just think it's Big ridiculous fan? that he just is taking these <laughs> songs and giving them the most ridiculous names. Yeah. Previously, he had plagiarized the Mohotela Queen song Umkolo Umkulo Kuafeli, which formed the basis of the Bow Wow Wow song Sea Jungle, parentheses, Jungle Boy. We literally do not have time to listen to all the songs that he plagiarized. It would take hours to go back and forth and listen to all the songs he plagiarized. But just imagine that they're all as bad as the Boyoyo Boys. I'm sure they are. There's no doubt in my mind. Yeah, yeah, of course. None of the artists concerned received any royalty payments at the time, and McLaren was later sued 
with a UK judge freezing royalty payments to McLaren, and the case was then settled out of court for an undisclosed sum of money, although there's no record of whether any of the final settlement went to the musicians or to the lawyers involved. Oh. So these were all hits in the UK, but like nothing really crossed over. So for Malcolm's first American single, he combined an Appalachian... I say Appalachian because I'm from Pennsylvania, but a lot of people say Appalachian. Uh, He combined an Appalachian square dance number with the latest trend from the New York hip hop scene and came up with a song called Buffalo Gals, one of the most successful records of 1983. And its success had far more to do with the talents of the rappers, the world famous Supreme team. But that was besides the point. What mattered is that McLaren had the ideas, manipulated the talent, took credit, and got the money. So this is Buffalo Gals, which should sound a little familiar to you. What is happening? <laughs> I'm wait- we're waiting for it to kick in. There's Malcolm. Okay. So that sounded like Eminem. Yeah. <laughs> Two buffalo gals go around the outside, round the outside, round the outside. Right? So that in and of itself is an interpolation of a traditional folk song called Buffalo Boys Go Around the Outside. The first old gent will march to the right, around the outside, around the outside, Buffalo Boy Go Round. Square the dance by Carson Robinson and his old timers. Turn your partner with the right hand round, your corner lady with the left hand round. Balance to your partner, roll and swing. Okay, and so every verse counts up three Buffalo Boys go around the outside, four Buffalo Boys go around the outside. So it's like a, it's square dance, right? Yeah. The person is directing them to do some stuff. Right. So that's what inspired McLaren to do Buffalo Gals, which like clearly is like, you know, that's probably in the public domain by then. Isn't there um, another song that's just the exact same thing, but it's like, Buffalo Girls, won't you come out tonight? Come out tonight. Come yep. out tonight. That's just another folk song. Okay. Um, but as you mentioned, this was interpolated by Eminem for his hit song, Without Me. This has 1.44 billion streams. Oh my god. Right. So, this song credits Malcolm McLaren as one of the writers. So McLaren gets paid for this, too. Wow. And I'm going to let Patrick Hicks on TikTok, it's Patrick Hicks 82, explain the rest of the way because this is even this year's song of the summer about damn time by Lizzo credits McLaren because of an interpolation of Buffalo gals, which I have to stress was not his to begin with. Amazing. So now in 1984, the world's famous Supreme team, they put out their own song. It's called Hey DJ. And Malcolm is not really involved with this song, but on the song, there's one line that references their earlier song, Buffalo Gals. And because of this one line, Malcolm McLaren got a songwriting credit on Hey DJ. And Hey DJ was sampled for Lizzo's About Damn Time. And that's how Lizzo is connected to the Sex Pistols. So. Wow. Because of that song, Hey DJ, which is sampled in About Damn Time, Malcolm McLaren is involved in not one, not two, but three mega super hits. 
And he's getting paid for all this. And he's getting paid for all this. But don't worry, because he died. He's dead. Ah, okay. So in 1984, Malcolm turned his... Uh, his attention to film production. He worked with various collaborators on a film treatment which mixed the story of Beauty and the Beast with the life of the of the fashion designer Christian Dior, and it was entitled Fashion Beast. What? <laughs> this was among a slate of productions that McLaren pitched in Hollywood in the first half of 1985, and he pitched to such film industry bigwigs as David Geffen. And Steven Spielberg. Wow. In the summer of 85, McLaren was appointed to the position of production executive at CBS Theatrical Films, the TV and stage arm of CBS Films. And he worked from an office on the CBS lot and he lived in a house in the Hollywood Hills above the Hollywood Bowl. And he focused on a movie called Fans, the musical, which is just about fans, I guess. I don't know. Like, like, like fans of music and they're singing themselves or something. And Fashion Beast. He commissioned British comic book writer Alan Moore, who wrote The Watchmen, to write a script and developed a raft of properties, including a a movie called Heavy Metal Surfing Nazis, about a post-apocalyptic turf war among gangs on California's environmentally damaged beaches. Dude, this guy's whack. Another project was called the rock and roll godfather which was the biopic of led zeppelin's manager peter grant and wild west wild with an e based on the notion of oscar wilde discovering the roots of rock and roll during his celebrated 1982 i'm sorry during his celebrated 1882 lecture tour of the united states riveting stuff yeah so none of these came to be obviously i would however watch heavy metal surfing nazis i would watch the oscar wilde thing um, in two in the year two thousand, with funds sourced from Sony Music and by the rock entrepreneur Alan McGee, Malcolm McLaren launched a campaign. Launched a campaign. Run for mayor of London. Wasn't going there. It's not where my brain was going. <laughs> yeah, in two thousand, with funds sourced from Sony Music and by the rock entrepreneur Alan McGee. McLaren launched a campaign to stand as an independent candidate in the inaugural elections for the position of mayor of London with a range of proposals from environmentally sensitive traffic, traffic calming to providing public libraries with a license to serve alcohol. Oh, cause that's just exactly what we need at the library. Honestly, it's not, it's not something I disagree with. Booze at the library. Why not get drunk, read a book. You're not going to remember it then. So that's why you stay at the library. It helps to retain li- <laughs> library retention. Um, in 2009, he was diagnosed with peritoneal mesothelioma, and he died of the disease on April 8th, 2010, in a hospital in Switzerland. So Mac- McLaren's last words were said by his son to have been, free Leonard Peltier. Go on. We don't have time to go into detail on who Leonard Peltier is, but fuck you, Malcolm. Fuck you. Leonard Peltier is an indigenous American activist, and he was a mainstay of the American Indian movement, and he was wrongfully convicted of aiding and abetting a murder. Well, so he aided. He kind of aided. It, there was like a robbery. A cop was shot. He like shot at the cop, but he didn't shoot the cop, but he was convicted of the cop's murder, and he's been in prison since 1977. He was sentenced to two consecutive life term terms of imprisonment for aiding and abetting resulting in the death of two fbi officers fbi agents 
this was at the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation in South Dakota in 1975. And he's been he's like one of the people that is constantly on the pardons list. Um, Obama with people thought that Obama was going to pardon him on the way out of office. And when he didn't, people were very upset. Mm-hmm. But like Malcolm McLaren doesn't care about Leonard Peltier. Yeah, I was going to ask you, do you think he even Fuck said that you. or his no kid made way. that up? His kid just made that up. Oh, no, I think the kid, I think that he actually said it, but I think that would be me like dying and being like, I really cared about Rwanda. Like what in my actions in my entire life? Like why, why on my deathbed should my last words be like, do this thing that I never, there was never evidence that I cared about in my entire, the entire rest of my life. Yeah. He's just trying to be dramatic. Yeah. And so in 1987, John Lydon looked back on his time in the Sex Pistols, the band that McLaren helped create, and said of his former manager, how, quote, how very little Malcolm had to do with it and how much praise he's accepted on his own behalf since. We wrote the songs, we did all the work, we did the gigs, we led the lifestyle, and he just seemed to have collected the accolades. But whatever happened to Johnny Rotten? What did ever happen to Johnny Rotten? I think you're going to tell us. I am. In the year 2000, while Malcolm McLaren was running for mayor, Johnny Rotten appeared on the British reality TV series, I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here. Get me out of here? It's like Celebrity Survivor. So this is a Johnny Rotten uh, supercut at, I'm on, from I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here. Okay. Guys, I've chosen Johnny as our new leader for today. No, that's not right. Yes, it's very right. You did so well yesterday. I'm not a leader. I'm not. And I've chosen you as our leader. I don't don't believe in leadership. I don't like it. Except to meet other people. (laughs) I'm going to be running around giving orders until I really get annoyed. You know, if the fire goes out one more time in the night, you know, it's all right me running up and down and doing it. I do that voluntarily, but camp leaders shouldn't be doing that. So let's have some fun today with that. Rouse, Rouse, camp leader is in the house. So just good, really good stuff already. <laughs> Get the fire going. Come, dogs. Ha, vip, vip. I don't mind chipping in if I've got something commonsensical to say. Oh, I've got a good one. As camp leader, I want a cigarette from each year. <laughs> Have you had the final <laughs> Oh, my God. He's been boiling water, but he hasn't been doing anything different to when he wasn't leader. Not great. Hello? Anyone by the camp down there? Is that water boiled? No, we're watching it. As camp leader, I think we should all get up and yell at each other. <laughs> 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 You're not sitting awkward enough. <laughs> <laughs> God bless him, man. Two hours of that. Do you know, I had people say to me before I came in, oh, you know, watch out, you know, you and John are going to, I reckon you and John are going to find it, you're going to conflict. Mate, he's as nice as pie ate. Right. Whose cigarettes can we pinch and whose bunk should we set fire to? <laughs> Yours. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, of course. As camp leader, I think we should burn me to death. Okay, so three years before that, we're not going to watch the clip of this because it's a little too long, but Johnny went on Judge Judy. Okay, so I did see uh, a teaser for that on YouTube. Yes, so Johnny went on Judge Judy claiming that uh, he, like, 
got into this dispute with his drummer robert williams and then he like fired him and williams claimed he was fired but johnny said he quit and there's like they lost money because they couldn't play a gig it was like also like just just nonsense judge judy referred to williams the drummer as a nudnik which is like a yiddish word for for like an idiot (laughs) okay so trigger warning now these days johnny says that he likes the queen and that anarchy is a terrible idea okay this is from audacity via the times in a brand new piece for the times of london former sex pistols frontman john lyden nay rotten chose to explain his antagonistic lyrics for anarchy in the uk while also illustrating his own views of current anti-government music uh, movements Quote, anarchy is a terrible idea, Leiden says, adding, let's get that clear. I'm not an anarchist. I'm amazed that there are websites out there, .org anarchist sites, fully funded by the corporate hand and yet ranting on about being outside the shitstorm. It's preposterous. And they're doing it in designer Doc Martens, clever little rucksacks, and nicely manufactured balaclavas. You! You did that! That's that is needed. your fault! <laughs> yeah! This is exactly you. What is wrong with you? <laughs> uh, yep. But, you know, sometimes you do something, but then you grow out of it. Sure. But he didn't really look like he'd grown out of anything on that Survivor clip. Certainly not. But this is recently. He, go, he went on to say, God bless the queen. She's put up with a lot. I've got no animosity against any one of the royal family. I never did. Hmm. He explains that his gripe was and still is with how the British public is asked to pay for their lavish lifestyle. It's the institution of it that bothers me, he says, and the assumption that I'm to pay for that, that's where I draw the line. It's like, no, you're not going to ski holidays on my tax. Uh, Yeah, they are, but that's not what you said anyway. Certainly not. Uh, Queen Elizabeth II's Platinum Jubilee celebration is taking place June 2nd through June 5th, 2022. And the Sex Pistols have joined their fellow Brits by releasing their very own commemorative coin in her honor. What? Leiden? I don't know, man. They made a commemorative coin? I think so, yeah. Do you want to see it? Yes. It's on, it's, it's on Instagram, so it might be... It, might be, it's, it is a seems like it's a promotional item but it's a sex pistols god save the queen commemorative coin this is a money grab no everything they do is a money grab i know but what i was wondering is who's getting the money from this i think i think him i think he is he is the the sex pistols now him steve jones and paul cook are are the, the only living members okay so i mean i don't yeah. hate the coin like I hate I hate it, but it's also kind of <laughs> shiny and fun. <laughs> Lyden also admitted in a recent interview with political commentator Piers Morgan that he's actually really, really proud of the Queen for surviving and doing so well. Oh my god, could you be more condescending? So, okay. But he seems kind of nice about it, right? He seems like he's like tempering his bad behavior, right? Like maybe he's not all that bad. I guess. I mean he was like so young then, he's so old now. But again, bringing it back to the get me out of here clip, he doesn't seem like he's matured all that much. Mm-hmm. And, you should, and you should know that if I'm defending him, it's because I'm about to say something really, really horrible about him. 
this is from Consequence of Sound from 2020. Former Sex Pistols frontman Johnny Rotten, a.k.a. John Lydon, made good on his threat to vote for Donald Trump <gasps> in Tuesday's presidential election. He's a citizen? He is a citizen. He's lived oh. in California for like 30 years. Oh, my God. Lydon called into Good Morning Britain on Wednesday to discuss his support for Trump. Quote, it makes complete sense to me for vote to vote for a person who actually talks about my kind of people. What does that mean, John? Who's your kind of people? What do you mean? White supremacists? I, th- I think he just means whites, but yes. John Lydon commented, Trump is not a politician. He never claimed to be. How unusually exceptionally wonderful it is, th- is that for people like me, working class people? Because oh. when I think Donald Trump, I think working class. No words. No words. He went on to say, we're bored of intellectual left wing ideas. We can't take much of you. You talk twaddle. Everything you do, you just miss the point of who the general population are. The interview then took an awkward turn when Good Morning Britain host Susanna Reid asked Lydon about Trump's behavior on the world stage. Let me finish, Lydon screamed. It does nothing for these people. Nothing. And this is why they now support him so loyally, because he's the only hope. Appearing to read off of a piece of paper, Lydon proceeded to regurgitate several right-wing talking points. Quote, I've watched what the Democrats have done to California, let alone this entire West Coast. It's absolutely disgusting. It's chaotic, dogma-led. It seems to have a Karl Marx agenda behind it. John, you auditioned for the Sex Pistols in a, in a clothing store full of Karl Marx shirts. The fuck are you talking about? Quote. Look at what your liberal-minded agenda has done to Portland and Seattle. The anarchy in the UK singer added, Do you want more of that everywhere? 140 solid days of rioting? Biden doesn't deal with Antifa or BLM in any way. Okay. In a previous interview with The Observer last month, Lydon last month from the writing of this article, so October of... 2020. Okay. Uh, Lyden lauded Trump's handling of the economy and said that he sympathized with him over being labeled as a racist. Quote, I've been accused of the very same thing. So I'm offended for anyone who's called that. He's, oh, he's offended for anyone who's called a racist called a for racist. being racist. Yeah. Poor, um, poor, in, poor guy. Yeah. It's, uh, <laughs> It's because in 2008, block party frontman Kele Okereke, block party the band. Yes. You know? Yes, I know. So Kele Okereke is, is black. He accused Lydon of an unprovoked racist attack that resulted in Okereke suffering severe facial bruising, bruising and cuts to his face. Details of the incident, which allegedly occurred backstage at a music festival in Spain, were later corroborated by members of Foles, who I know, Kaiser Chiefs, and Mogwai. All corroborated the story. Mm-hmm. When the interviewer asked John Lydon about the killing of George Floyd by police, Lydon responded, there's not anyone I know that wouldn't say that that wasn't ghastly. Absolutely. But it doesn't mean all police are nasty or all white folk are racist because all lives matter. He said all lives matter. End okay. quote. We have to, we're done giving him a microphone. <laughs> so he does not talk again in the story. I promise you. Thank you. So how the fuck, how the ever loving fuck does Johnny Rotten, the one, the one person who seemed to believe the hype of the Sex Pistols, right? He believed that he was that. And now he's like, well, listen, not all police. 
<laughs> and the queen's pretty great. The yeah, anarchy's I love horrible. The queen. Queen's great. Um, how the fuck? How the fuck, man? Boomers. Boomers. But fear not. There's a TV show celebrating the Sex Pistols currently on FX. Oh, God. England's terribly boring. Nothing ever changes. Kisses for me. Save all your kisses for me. We're invisible. We're pissed off. We're bored. So maybe that should be our image. With the right guidance, you could change the world. <laughs> That's Malcolm. That's Malcolm, okay. With the right guidance, you could change the world. Punk has taken London's youth by storm. People's minds are too imprisoned. We want to destroy that so the future can emerge. We're going to kick this country awake if it kills us. My vision for the Sex Pistols is one of danger and desire. No, no. Whether you can play is not the criteria. It's whether you've got something to say. Come see us play. We're awful. Creating remixed, remastered. Uh, I don't want musicians, I want saboteurs, assassins. What do you want to say? You're music. Actually, we're not into music. We're into chaos. This is punk! It's okay. I'm good. I don't. I don't want to watch anything lionizing these people. Uh, this is based on Steve Jones's book and directed by Danny Boyle, who directed Slumdog Millionaire and Train Spotting, and Twenty Days Later and a Sunshine, a bunch of my favorite films. But Boyle emphasizes that his goal was never to tell a definitive story. "Quote: It's not a documentary because there isn't one version of the truth here." He says, "You just have to hope that the essence that you get is faithful enough to enough of it to warrant being taken seriously." It's a bit pretentious, obviously, but I was sort of destined to do this, Danny Boyle says. I knew that I would have to make a punk film at some point. It was my own personal debt to them. To and who? what they did to punkers? the Sex Pistols. Okay. And, and what they punks. did to me. Punkers. <laughs> and what they did to me in my life. They made me feel like fucking hell. We're really going to do this. And we're not going to apologize. And it's going to be full tilt full volume right the way through and it's going to be full of music we're not going to fucking fade the music out halfway through a song and if that cuts the audience in half so be it because the pistols didn't apologize for anything even racism just just not just nonsense just complete and utter drivel nonsense <laughs> so we're gonna go out on an snl sketch which perfectly Woo-hoo. encapsulates um Exciting. the the essence of later years sex pistols uh fred armison plays a singer called ian rubbish and the bizarros and uh let's see what he has to say um it's a look back on the british punk band ian rubbish and the bizarros in the history of punk and steve jones from the sex pistols makes a cameo in oh this, fantastic in this sketch. tonight on history of punk ian rubbish and the bizarros ian rubbish and the bizarros what a group unbelievable i joined the bizarros because in all of punk music, there was no one angrier than Ian Rubbish. He was angry at the police. Where can people find us on the internet, Lindsay? 
Find us on the internet at Lyrics for Lunch on Instagram and Twitter and at LyricsForLunch.com. <laughs> and for longer and weirder stuff, hit us up at LyricsForLunch at gmail.com. And rate and review wherever fine podcasts are sold. It helps people find us. And tune in next week when we do this all again. Uh, we're doing Blink-182. Hell yeah. Some real punkers. Yeah. <laughs> so until next time, I'm Aviv Rubenstein. I'm Lindsay Tucker. Saying anarchy in the UK. Hell yeah. Thanks to you, I say bad night. We thought he was being ironic. We thought it was a joke. It turned out he just really liked her. You keep me neglected, say. You're a very special light day. Yeah, it was hard for the rest of us, you know, because at the time, no self-respecting punk band was singing pro-Thatcher songs. And what do you think about the police? A bunch of bullies, aren't they? <laughs> Thugs. I wouldn't mind being at their funeral. And you've been very outspoken about the Queen. Is she a Queen? Yeah, I... I find her to be a silly, stupid cow. Uh, right. <laughs> and what are your feelings on Miss Thatcher? Uh, I like her. <laughs> a really sweet face, willing to make the hard choices. Uh, I respect that. I think she's a. <laughs> Oi! It's the Prime Minister you're talking about. Be decent. I didn't vote for her. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Right? Then move, leave. Have another country take you in. Oh, they won't do it. You know why? Because you're a parasite that sucks off the sky. That's no answer. Mate. Come on. Take mate. it easy. No. No, I take it. Take it easy is what put this country into the decline. Soapbox. Things were bad, but it got worse when we started playing our songs live. I suppose you could do a better job of running the country. She works every day of the week, including Saturday. It was awful, but, you know, we had to ask him to leave the group. Uh, he tried to make a comeback with Living in the Gutter. You remember that one? If you're looking for me, I'll tell you where I'll be. Living in the gutter. Yeah, it was great, right? He was, was classic Ian, you know? I thought he was back, you know? But then I listened to the B-side. Iron Lady, I wanna kiss your iron fist. You crushed the Argentinians. You killed a few, they won't be missed Let's go for a drive When I'm with you, I feel alive When we're done, we can privatise Our nation's in the streets Well, I had the, the honour of being the Prime Minister's personal secretary and whenever she was down, she'd listen to Ian Rubbish His music meant the world to her when she was pushed out of office in 91, she invited him for tea. And, um, well, that was the happiest I'd ever seen her. I remember saying to him once, I said, Ian, she's just an awful person. You know, what's her appeal, mate? And he just looked at me and he said, she reminds me of my mum. <laughs> there you have it. Yeah, I'll miss her. She wasn't perfect, you know, but who of us are? I'll tell you one thing, though. She's spot on right about the Euro. And don't you forget it. <laughs> Good lady, yeah. Very nice. Indeed. <laughs> <laughs>